one of the most unbelievable religious and prayerful experiences of my life, um, I was able to do a 30-day retreat. Um, if you know what a 30-day retreat means, it's a it's a uh, Ignatius's spiritual exercises. Um, it's over a th- over a month. You're in a silent retreat. I know me in a silent retreat. It was rough, right? Um, they so there was this moment in this retreat where I was like really loving it. It was great, uh, and then I hit day three, and I realized, oh man. I had a long time to go. Uh, the retreat, it actually, we started silence on, an, on like an afternoon and an evening. And it was like, all right, so we're going to start silence after this meeting. And we had like a little prayer experience in this meeting. It was really nice. And they were like, okay, talk to you in a month. So over the course of the retreat, every day you would meet with your spiritual director. You would do four holy hours and all this stuff. So like the days move, but they just move at a really different pace. Um, one of the best, one of the biggest highlights of this retreat is you get to nap a lot, right? So it was like, it was, it was, I'm counting the days though in my mind throughout the course of the retreat. So I get to the first day and I'm like, I, we get to that moment of silence and like, all right, I go to bed, I wake up, I'm like, day two, here we go. This is gonna be great. Day three, day four. Well, on day four, I took like a big nap, like in the middle of the afternoon. I slept for like five hours. This is a REM cycle, right? It was awesome. Uh, I wake up, I go do my other prayer times, but I, I had slept so long that I convinced myself that it was day five, and I was like, cool, cool, that's good. I'm like, day five, let's do this. Man, I'm already five days in. This is going to be easy, because I was like really worried about the silence, because if you didn't know, I'm an extrovert. Um, so... I'm going through this, I'm on day five, I come back, to the, come back to my room, and there's a calendar that they had put under my door, and it had like a couple of little chores and like who was reading for mass and stuff every day, and I looked at the calendar, and the calendar on it, it said what day it was, and when I looked at the date, it wasn't day five, it was day four, it wasn't day four either. It said day three, and I'm like, wait, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. It, this is at least day four. Like, I know it took the nap, I messed up. Then I look back. The afternoon was just a transition day. I'm like, this is bull. <laughs> I'm like, I don't think so. I went from, I got this, to, oh my God, what's gonna happen? <laughs> like, I'm losing it, man. This is not gonna work. During the course of though that 30 days, those next 27 days, I had many a time that I wanted to run. There was a one spot that I would sit where I could see the airport from Creighton's, Creighton's campus, and I'd sit there and pray, but I'd see planes going back and forth, and I'm just like, I want to go home, right? Like, it was like getting me homesick and stuff, but one of the most important things that I learned in that retreat was just to stay plugged in. Stay plugged in and God's going to teach you something. Stay plugged in and the Lord is going to bring about some fruit. If you stay plugged in, the God's, God's got something for you. So tonight, as we jump into this, I'm going to share a little bit of the grace from that retreat. And it's a, this is, a, this is a, a, um, like these are some reflections that I've been really praying with that I really, like they, they're near and dear to my heart because they spoke a lot to me. And I just hope that sharing that grace is good for you. But ultimately, tonight is not about me speaking. It's not about anything else other than you and God having 
a time together. Like tonight, any mission, this Lenten season, everything that we do in the church is not about the people next to us. It's about you and God having an encounter tonight. Amen? So, if you, you should have, if you don't, you should have a, uh, a sheet with some quotes on it. Well, the first thing on the first page, when I got out of this retreat, I came home and I was reflecting on some of, just some of the graces from the retreat. And one of the things, one of the images of prayer that I continue to sit with was this idea that there are these mountains that God interacts with us on. So I want to start by reading a, a small excerpt, and we'll kind of break this open because I think it has a lot to do with Lent, okay? So at the very beginning, on the very top of your page, it should read, Everything we have is from the Father, and our destiny lies with Him, no other. There are two peaks on this journey towards communion, two summits on the way to our heavenly reunion, two situations we all find throughout this blessing we call life, one of light and ease, the other of sin and strife. But we have a trailblazer, an exemplar, in which to follow, the God-man who experienced both our greatest joy and deepest sorrow. As our journey goes on, it is His ascension we tirelessly seek, and this journey bids us to climb towards both of these peaks. One, Christ scaled with companions on His way, the other climbed on the eve of His last day. One of light which poured from heaven like a flood, the other remembered with sweat like droplets of blood. One where the apostles desired dwellings that would last, the other where he pleaded for the cup to pass. One where the Father recognizes the Son as the Beloved, the other where the Lamb is prepared for the new covenant. One where he was flanked by Elijah and Moses, the other where in a garden he was betrayed with a kiss. These summits display the process for us all as we continue to journey back from the fall. These two peaks, these two mountains, they're two very, very central figures in the life of Christ, two central figures throughout the Lenten season. One of them, the light, the one of light, the one of ease, the one where he sees the beloved, the beloved son, Moses and Elijah, talking about the transfiguration, right? Up on Mount Tabor, I know some people went there, right? But like up on Mount Tabor, the mountain of the transfiguration. The other that we're talking about is Gethsemane, the night before he dies. Again, some people I know went last November with Father Greg, but like it's the agony in the garden. It's not so, it's not so bright, it's dark. It's not so easy, sweat like blood, right? These two things, I think if we really reflect and we dive into these two images, they can show the light and darkness, right? The title of, of this mission. They can show the light and darkness of life and how we should react to both the light and the darkness. So tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to dive into just what, what these mountains mean and particularly get into the details of the transfiguration. 
If we think about something, though, before we, before we start talking about these two situations in, in particular, we got to first just understand that in Scripture, when things happen on a mountain, like thing, a lot of things happen on a mountain, God talks to His people. He interacts with His people on a mountaintop. So when you hear that Jesus is going up a mountain, it's probably something big's about to happen, right? In, in the Old Testament, we hear it over and over again. We have Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, that's the place where Moses got the, the law, the Ten Commandments, right? He goes up to see God. We'll dive into that in a little bit. Mount Zion. Mount Zion, the Davidic covenant comes from there. That's King David through the whole Old Testament. He's still heralded as this big figure. It happens on Mount Zion, right? Mount Horeb, another one where we see Elijah. Again, we'll dive into that a little bit more. But mountains just play a central role in the Old Testament, in all of Scripture. So when we hear that someone's going up a mountain, we got to pay attention, right? We got to pay attention because it's known as like God is up in the heavens. When we're climbing up the mountain, we're going to meet God. Does that make sense? Right? So let's start there. Jesus brings us up a mountain for the transfiguration. We hear that he's going up a mountain for the transfiguration, right? So you should have the text in front of you. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his countenance was altered and his raiment became dazzling white. And behold, two men talked with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was coming to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they, won, when they wakened, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were, par were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is well that we are here. Let us make three booths, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he said this, a cloud came over and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silence, and no one in those days, and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now, we're up on this mountain. Now just imagine this with me for a moment. Like, Jesus takes his inner circle, Peter, James, John, right? James and John. They're, they're the two that, like, asking their mom to get, like, Jesus to get them good seats in heaven, Right? Like, let us sit one at your left and one at your right. At least be man enough to ask. Like, it's not like they're the best to, to like, model apostles. And then Peter's on the other side. Peter's the one that's going to get the church and be the rock and whole thing and then get called the devil right after. So, like, it's not like these guys are perfect, but they get an opportunity to see this whole thing happen in front of them. 
Right? It's not the perfect ones that get invited to experience this whole moment where Jesus is going to tell us something about himself, where God is going to reveal who Jesus is. So they come up on the mountain. They're tired, probably hungry. They're falling asleep. Kind of sounds like Mason in church. Uh, anyway, like, it, it's, it's, it's a, like this is just the space where they find themselves that they're going up this mountain and they're being led by Jesus. And up on the mountain, what happens? His face changes. Where all of a sudden, it doesn't look like his face. It's almost like light is shining out of it. His clothes, whether he was wearing black or brown or whatever other color, they become white. Not like just like really white, like off-white, like white. Dazzling white where he's clothed almost in light itself. And then these two people appear next to him. Moses and Elijah. On either side of him, flanking him. And he's looking at, they're looking at this experience. Now if we look at this experience from the standpoint of today, we're like, oh, that sounds really cool. That's nice. That's a really pretty thought. I wonder if that really happened. Like we, we start asking those kind of things. We start thinking about those kind of things like, oh yeah, that's great. But if we look at it through the eyes of what Peter, James, and John would have known growing up in a Jewish culture, then there's something that's very, very miraculous happening before them. There's a reason why Peter wants to stay there. There's a reason why they want to build tents and live on top of this mountain and not let go of this moment. There's something bigger going on than just a really good, like, heavenly washing of clothes, right? There's something huge that's happening up on this mountain. If we think of, let's think of Moses first. Moses is leading the Israelites. He's on the Exodus. He's through the desert, the whole nine yards, right? They have the plagues. They got the Pharaoh. The whole Red Sea thing happens. Forty years through the desert. Well, while he's going through the desert, he comes to a mountain. And God tells him to climb Mount Sinai. Go to the top of the mountain. And that's where he receives the Ten Commandments. That's where the Israelites are back, down on the ground, on the ground level, wondering where did he go? Did he run away? And they start to worship a calf and all these things, right? Well, during the course of this conversation, after the Israelites have turned against God, after the Israelites have fallen back into idolatry, Moses goes back up the mountain. He's up on this mountain in the book of Exodus. And he has this moment where he's he's praying and he's before the presence of God. And after praying and pleading for his people, after desiring a covenant, after all these wonderful things where Moses is just trying to do the best that he's got, that he can to just hold this whole thing together, he gives an honest and open prayer to the Lord. Like a very, very just honest, raw prayer. Should be on your sheet, Exodus. Moses said, I pray thee, Show me thy glory. Let's stop right there for a second. Show me thy glory. Like God, show me, Moses, 
Your servant, the one who's led a nation from slavery, who's been walking around in a desert, who you opened up the Red Sea for, you show me your glory. Like basically prove to me that you exist. I don't know about you, I've gotten into that spot. Like I've had that conversation with God before. On that retreat, actually. Um, I've had that conversation with God before though. Like, look, I've done, I've done youth group, CCD, seminary, like, God, like, where you at? Prove to me that you're real in my life. Let me see that you're real in my life. That's an honest prayer. That's a prayer that comes from a space of, of just hardship, of struggle of pain, of angst, of whatever you want to call it, but sometimes we just have to let a prayer like that out with God where we don't color it up and we just say, you need to show me. Moses continues, or God continues speaking back to Moses. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before your name the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand upon the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and yet you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. Moses gets a consolation prize. Like, God, I need you to prove to me that you're real. I want to see you face to face, eye to eye, man to man. Let me see you. And God says, Do you, I'm not saying no because you, because you don't deserve it. I'm not saying no because I don't want you to have it. I'm saying no because you're going to die if you see it. So he compromises with them. I'm going to put my hand in front of your face. I'm going to walk by you. And then you can see the, my back. That's the best I got right now. That's the most you can, you can understand right now. That's the most, that's all you need right now. But Moses still has a desire to see God. That desire in Moses Moses has never gone away. That he still has a desire to see God face to face. Let's look at Elijah. Elijah, one of the greatest prophets, right? One of the greatest prophets through the whole Old through the whole Old Testament. He does a ton of of, of beautiful speaking and preaching of, of all foretelling the coming of Christ. In fact, a, a pro, like Elijah is like the prophet, like one of the prophets. Like when they think of, when the Jews would think of a prophet, like Elijah was on the short list of the best ones. Elijah has a similar request at one point. He has a similar request where he says, I want to see the Lord. Like, God, I want to see you. In fact, it comes on the tail end of him eating and walking for 40 days in a desert 
We've heard about something like that on the first Sunday of Lent with the temptations of Christ, right? Elijah did it before Christ did it. He's walking through the desert for 40 days trying to live, live and follow whatever it is that the Spirit is leading him to. And at the end of the 40 days, he's like, Lord, I'm tired of this. I want to see you. Show yourself to me. We read it in Scripture. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out, stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah wants to see God face to face. He wants to see God like, Lord, let me see your presence. Let me know you're here. Earthquake. Big, loud, a lot of production value right here, right? The Lord's not in the earthquake. A driving wind, the Lord's not in the wind. A fire, some pyrotechnics, right? He's not in the fire. But where's the Lord? The Lord is in the small whispering sound. The Lord's not in the noise. Not in all the activity. We find the Lord in the whisper, in the stillness, in the quiet, where we can hear His voice. I know for me, there, there's many times in my life, like when I'm, if I'm in a good spot with prayer, I'm like, yeah, I can do, like, I can do more and pray less. No, that doesn't work that way. There's a lot of activity in life. We can be doing a lot of good for a lot of people, but how much time are we taking? And I understand that life is, is, is a lot, and it's busy. And you got kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and everything else that is chomping at every bit of time you have. But how often do we come and just find a moment to just sit with the Lord in quiet? 30 seconds, a minute in our day and just recognize the Lord that he's there. Elijah wants to see God, wants to hear God, wants to know God is around and he's looking in the wrong spot. He's looking in the wrong place. He's trying to figure out where God is and all of this, all of this activity around him and where is God? He's behind it all in quiet. I think for us, if we look at Moses and Elijah, we can see two aches of our heart. That, man, I want to know where God is. I want to see you, Lord, face to face. I need to know that you're real in my life. And, Lord, I don't know where on earth to find you. I want to know that you're real. And I don't know where to find you. 
I don't know how to find you. The beautiful thing is, is that in the transfiguration, these two men show up with Christ. These two men have the same desire to see the Lord in the Scriptures. They have the same desire that, Lord, I want to know you're real. I want to know you care about me. I want to hear you, see you, feel you in my life. Why on earth do they show up at the transfiguration? Why on earth do they find themselves flanking Jesus on this mountain years later? The catechism, you should have the quote, talks about it in in paragraph 2583. Elijah, like Moses, both of them, hides in a cleft of the rock until the mysterious presence of God has passed by. But only on the mountain of transfiguration will Moses and Elijah behold the unfailed face of Him who they sought. The light of knowledge, the glory of God shines in the face of Christ, crucified and risen. When we think about the transfiguration, what's happening is Jesus is basically standing there as the fulfillment of both the law, which is Moses, and the prophets, which is Elijah. Elijah, And he's fulfilling a promise to them. Man, Lord, I want to see you face to face. Well, Moses, Jesus, now you can. Lord, I don't know where to look for you. I don't know where to find you. I don't know where you are in my life. Elijah, Jesus, now you know. You see, the beautiful thing is, is that as somebody on this side of the New Testament, on this side of the, of the, of the, of the, uh, the, the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ, as a person now sitting here 2,000 years later, we have the opportunity where we know the answer, we know the ache that Moses and Elijah both had on that mountain, that both had so many years ago in the Old Testament. The fulfillment of their promise, the fulfillment of who they wanted to see, where they wanted to find God, is comes down to one person, and his name's Jesus. And the beautiful thing is, is we have the opportunity to see him eye to eye, face to face. In a letter to the Hebrews, we read, the very beginning of the letter to the Hebrews, this is... The author of the Hebrews, a Christian, trying to convert Hebrew people to the faith. And what does he begin with? In many and various ways, God spoke, out of, spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom all he created the world. He reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature. Jesus Christ reflects the glory of God to the people. He's the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament. Jesus said himself, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. The promise that God had for us from creation, from the fall of Adam and Eve at the very beginning of time, finds its answer in Jesus. Finds its answer in Christ. Now look, Father, I understand. That's really cool. Like there's a lot of good, there's a lot of good symbolism going on here with the Old Testament, the, the prophets and the law and Christ and the fulfillment and everything else. Great. But what on earth does any of that have to do with me now? 
I do think that those two questions of, the, of Moses and Elijah still ring true in our hearts today. Like, Lord, I need to know that you're real. And even if I know you're real, where can I find you? The beautiful thing is, is that we have a faith that is incarnate. We have a faith that takes on flesh. We have a faith that is, that's got signs and symbols and sacraments that show us and reveal to us the heavenly realities through them. And because on the, on, before Jesus went to the agony in the garden, because at, at the Last Supper, Jesus felt it was so that He could give Himself to us in bread and wine, we have the opportunity to come and see Him face to face right here. We have the opportunity to receive Him. Not just to see Him, not just to talk to Him, not just to hear His voice, but to receive Him into our lives. We have the opportunity to receive Him so that His flesh becomes my flesh. That I receive the Lord in a powerful way that brings Him to life again in me. I get to see the Lord face to face and be able to spend time with Him. The same way that Peter, James, and John wanted to just spend time with the Lord. The same way that Peter was so excited about spending time with God that he wanted to build a house. <laughs> that he wanted to live there in that moment with the same Lord who revealed Himself to us. Like tonight, when we come for adoration, we get to experience the Lord here. We get to see the Lord here. And a lot of the elements from the transfiguration and a lot of the elements from Mount Tabor find their way here tonight. There's a glory cloud. Peter, by the time that Peter's thinking about building booths, there's this moment where there's a cloud that, enc that engulfs him. This presence that just kind of finds its way around him. You know, when we use incense in the church, we're not just using incense to make people cough. <laughs> we, just, we don't want to test your asthma medicine. That's not what we're doing. When we use it, what we're doing is, is we're building, we're showing that the same presence of God that was there on Mount Tabor is here now. We have candles that are lit. When we light candles, what it is, it's the light, the same light of His face, of His dazzling clothes that's reflecting out to us so that we can recognize His presence. And I think the thing that carries on still in all of our hearts is that today, still, we wrestle with those two questions. We wrestle with those two spaces of prayer. Like, Lord, I just need you to prove that you're real in my life. Like, I've been through some stuff, man. I got baggage. I haven't seen you or felt you in a really long time, and I'd really like to see you. And if that's not you, it might be, Lord, uh, me and you, we were on good terms. There was some good times, a retreat, Bible study, whatnot, but 
just feel distant. And Lord, I just want to hear you. I just want to hear your voice. I want to know where to find you. Tonight, we're invited up the mountain. We're invited to come to the source of life. The same Lord that looks down on us wherever we are is in the flesh here. We don't have to question if he's real. We don't have to question if he cares. Because God steps down to this altar to see you. God steps down to this altar to pray with you face to face. 